Good morning, and welcome to episode 610 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. It's a momentous Monday. We are back to five episodes a week at long last, and we are reviving our team preview podcast series. So this is the third time we've done this. If you weren't with us the first two times, I will tell you how it works. Every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday from now through the end of March, Wednesdays will still be listener email shows. We will be talking about one team, reviewing the offseason, looking forward to the season, asking the important questions, and maybe some frivolous questions. Uh, Which team will it be this year, Ben? (laughs) We'll be talking about one team every day. These episodes are two segments. So in the first segment, Sam and I will talk to the author of the BP annual chapter about that team. We will generally be talking to one of the authors of the chapter. So sometimes it'll be the comments author. Mm. Sometimes it'll be the essay author. Okay. Sometimes that's the same person. An author. In the second segment, BP author and editor Sahadev Sharma will be doing a second interview where he'll be talking to someone who covers that team from a different perspective, a beat writer or columnist or broadcaster, who knows, we don't even know, he'll surprise us. So we will list in the episode description where that second segment starts. You can skip to that if you want. You can wait till we stop talking and Sahadev starts talking. So as we go along, you are, of course, welcome to procure a baseball prospectus annual and follow along with the chapters as we discuss them. A secondary companion to these episodes, our sister site or daughter site, or I don't know what to call it, some relation to this podcast, Banished to the Pen which is run by Effectively Wild podcast listeners, are doing a a companion series, like a team in the box every day that will coincide with the episode we're putting up here. So you can go to banishedtothepen.com and check that out as a supplement. So today we are going in reverse order of Pocota projected win totals. So we are starting with the teams that are projected to be worse and finishing with the teams that are projected to be best. So today's team is probably not a surprise. Some Pocota projections are controversial. This one is probably not. We will be starting with the Philadelphia Phillies. So here to discuss the Phillies with us is Michael Bauman of Grantland. Later in the episode, Megan Montemuro of the News Journal will talk to Sahadev. Hello, Michael. Hi. It's a it's a pleasure to be on, uh, less so to be on first. <laughs> yeah, you got to break the ice, but that's okay. You've been on before. So the Phillies. So it's it's tough. I feel like we have to be kind to our first guests because often they are someone who has some allegiance to the team. And if we're talking about this team first, it's generally not a good thing for that team. So give us a review of the Phillies offseason. They have declared that they are a rebuilding team. And yet it hasn't been a very active offseason. So how would you characterize it? I'm I'm very pleased. Well, First, first of all, they they traded away probably my favorite player in in franchise history and Jimmy Rollins, which I cried about um, for for several days after the the trade was announced. But considering that, um, I think they've done a really good job this off season of uh, of executing that rebuild. Um, I know there's a lot of frustration among Phillies fans and among uh, the local media in Philadelphia that they're not doing more faster. But the the fact is that you don't get to be uh, 
the number number one worst team in in the Pakota projections if you've got a lot to trade away. Um, so I think there's a little bit of frustration, which I don't share, by the way, about uh, them not having traded Cole Hamels yet. But they they turned Jimmy Rollins, who's a, a 35 year old, 36 year old with a no no trade clause, into uh, two potential um, major league starting pitchers. They got another potential big league arm for for Marlon Byrd, who is who is also old as all get out and had a one year and a, an option on his deal. Um, dating back to last year, they've made uh, subtle moves like getting they got two non-zero value prospects for uh, the former Fausto Carmona, which I didn't think was possible. Um, Pat Gillick has re-entered the uh, the team's power structure as team president, um, which. You know, he was the architect of the of the the World Series team, so that's welcome. I think that's that's given us a little bit of a coherent an idea that there is a coherent plan. I think that since like mid season 2012, the Phillies have quietly been um, they haven't done a lot actively to to advance their their rebuild, but they haven't done anything to to harm it. Which um, you know, given what we thought about their front office as recently as three or four years ago, that's that's a bigger victory than you'd think. And your essay sort of, uh, I don't know, it kind of draws a line in a way between uh, pre-2000, I guess, 13 Ruben Amaro, uh, or maybe not Amaro, but pre-2013 Phillies front office and post, and looks at how we're sort of always a little bit behind in our assessment of things because it takes a long time for things to shake out. But... Um, it was sort of surprising me. I hadn't really thought about the Phillies this way, but your hypothesis is kind of that since they realized that they were doing terribly and they weren't going to compete, uh, they actually haven't really done a very bad job. The front office has made a lot of savvy moves. And so I just wonder uh, if, imagine that, um, uh, you know, Ruben Amaro, we only knew of him from, say, I don't know, July 31st, 2012 onward. Uh, what would be the kind of stat head consensus or the bloggy consensus of Ruben Amaro Jr. as a GM? What would his place be in baseball and in the, uh, you know, in, in baseball Twitter? I think he'd be middle of the pack. Um, you know, he hasn't done anything splashy. Uh, if you think of, of GMs who have who have come along, who we have sort of a, a high opinion of, you know, I guess newer newer GMs like Jeff Lunauer, AJ Preller, like they've done they've done big things. You know, nothing the Phillies have done over the past uh, past 18 months, 24 months has, has really been revolutionary. But I think he's been a, a par for the course GM, which with a, a team in a media market that's capable of fielding a $190 million payroll when they want to, a par for the course GM gets you, you know, that gets you a playoff team. The problem sure. is, the, is the hole that he dug in, in the past three or four years before that. I'm curious what percentage of responsibility or credit for that World Series title you assign to each of the the few GMs who had a hand in it. How much how much is Ed Wade say? How much is Pat Gillick and how much is Ruben Amaro? Ed Wade was was tremendously unpopular in Philadelphia, but he it was his front office, and I think uh, Mike Arbuckle, the assistant GM who I mentioned briefly in the the annual, he was sort of the the scouting guy. And the Phillies drafted within two or three years of of the turn of the century, about as well as any team has in in that shorter period of time. 
they used first round picks on Pat Burrell, uh, Chase Utley, Cole Hamels, um, second round pick and, uh, and Brett Myers and a second round pick on Jimmy Rollins and a fifth round pick on Ryan Howard. And right there, that gets you, you know, that gets you about to where they were when Gillick took over and Gillick was the one who made, uh, made all those moves to, to get them over the top. He made the Joe Blanton trade and the, um, the Brad Lidge trade and, uh, um, got Jason Worth and, and Jamie Moore and, and uh, Shane Victorino for pretty much nothing. So those were the moves that really put him over the top. I'd say, you know, it's uh, I'd say about 50, 55 percent uh, for Ed Wade slash Mike Arbuckle and the the rest going to Gillick, because I think that that Wade built built that foundation. But Gillick was the one who made the moves that put them over the tops. So that would be zero to Amaro. Well, he took over after they won the World Series. Oh, OK, OK. So, you know, he I, I would give Amaro, you know, I'd split so that Amaro, maybe, maybe right, one and, third for for Wade, one third for Gillick, one third for Amaro for the team that uh, that, that won 102 games. games in 2011. So you'd give him a third for the 102 games. Yeah. Uh, based on kind of what? Well, the um, it's like the, you know, the Utley Rollins, Howard, um, Hamels, Myers, you know, whatever core that gets you to about 85 wins for the, the Gillick team gets you into the playoffs. But the addition of, of Cliff Lee and Roy Oswalt and Roy Halliday, that that's sort of what made the the turn the Phillies from that team that won, um, I think it was 88 games when they when they won the World Series and, you know, add Roy Halliday and Cliff Lee. And that's most of most of 15 wins better. So um, when a team wins a World Series, it buys a, a, well, I mean, you know, as they say, flags fly forever, right? And so as long as you've won a World Series, you get a lot of leeway. And um, I think that there's always going to be a defense for, um, well, maybe not uh, the World Series defense for Amaro, but, you know, he did help put together a 102-win team. I'm just wondering, though, is there, do you feel like having watched the rest of the league and having seen, um, you know, the other kind of teams in that? payroll area um i know the red sox have finished in last place two of the last three years so uh, maybe that would be um uh, a defense of amaro but they haven't really sunk i wouldn't say in a in a way that is quite so hopeless as the phillies have been is there do you think is there a, an excuse for letting a 190 million dollar team get to this point uh if it involves you know, winning 102 games. I mean, does 102 games justify this? Does it justify where they are? Or is it just unjustifiable? I mean, $190 million seems like maybe you could say should prevent this from ever happening. Yeah, I think that they're, well, they're, yes and no. I think that um, in order to get to, to 102 wins and to string that, like he got every single last win he could out of that core before it got too old to, uh, to compete and, you know, Chase Utley wasn't a, an eight win player anymore. Um, but there was, there was also, you brought up the Red Sox, like the, the Red Sox won the world series in 2004 and then broke up their core almost immediately. And then were able to rebuild and win with, uh, an almost completely different team in 2007 and then do the same thing and, and win again in 2013. And that's sort of my best case. That was my best case scenario. And like I started, uh, blogging uh, about the Phillies in 2010, and that was one of the first things that I um, that I really started writing about. It was like, you know, we should sh- that we back when it was we uh, should tr- should uh, trade Shane Victorino while his value is high. You know, maybe you talk about getting getting more for Jason Worth than just that 
that first round draft pick. And, you know, you don't hang on to to Howard and, and maybe even Rollins and, and give them extensions. Um, maybe try to restock the farm system now so that a different group of Phillies can win. You know, maybe you you lose 80 games for a year or two, but you come back ready to compete for another couple World Series uh, in 2011 or 2012. And I think what Amar did going all in with that core uh, is entirely defensible. But getting to this getting to to this stage with that much money involved in the team is it's the the difference between where the Phillies are and where. Um, I don't know. I think where the Yankees are, for instance, is entirely because it's a failure of of scouting and making a cup and uh, the and making a couple of, of very bad, very easily avoidable decisions. Um, you know, the Ryan Howard contract, the you know, the first Cliff Lee trade where they they didn't get enough back to to offset the the return for Roy Halladay, that sort of thing. So and oh, and the other thing is he he would have bought himself a lot more goodwill for. For, you know, for even though he wasn't the, the GM in 2008, he was a part of that front office like he squandered a lot of that goodwill by um, by being openly antagonistic to, I don't know, for lack of a better word, people like us. Um, you know, he was sort of the, the last uh, general manager to to mock advanced statistics. The Phillies were the, the last team to really hire a statistical analyst. And uh, and, you know, he, he sort of ran it the way you'd run your your fantasy baseball team and was very proud of that it does seem like the uh the no the the failure of scouting which is a huge 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 part of this story their failure to develop first round picks for a long run uh, long run it is also sort of hard to know how much is just bad luck i mean it, the, generally speaking a team can very easily miss on a series of first round picks without necessarily having a, a terrible product especially if mm. you're picking 25th every year I was going to ask you about that, too, because Matt Swartz wrote a nice article in December at the Hardball Times about how abysmal Phillies drafts have been and how even if you took Ryan Howard away or you made Ryan Howard productive, the Phillies would not be a winning team because of the lack of young talent that they have drafted and developed themselves. So I wanted to ask you if you can pinpoint any systematic mistake that they have made in those drafts. Is it a failure of drafting or player development or luck or do we not know enough to say i think it's it's a lot of luck but yeah and and uh you should if anybody listening hasn't read that matt swartz article you should i read that about a about three weeks after i turned in my last draft of my essay and and went yeah that's what i should have written instead <laughs> um but so it's a combination of things. Everybody, you know, the Rays have declined. And the thing that everybody points to uh, with the Rays decline is that when they were drafting in the top five, they got David Price and Evan Longoria. And now that they're drafting at the back end of the first round, that top end talent isn't there. So imagine that. Uh, but you give up your first rounder every other year because you've signed Raul Abanez and decided that a 36 year old corner outfielder is is worth giving up your first round pick for. Um, that you've signed a relief pitcher and Jonathan Papelbon for and given up a first round pick like two weeks before they they change the compensation system. So um, it's it's where they've drafted how infrequently they've drafted and i think that was in imprudent you know it's bad luck i think they've been on the on the unlikely end of unlucky but they haven't made it easy for themselves uh by their their free agent um 
by their free agent acquisition policy. Like they've signed, they signed a lot of then type a free agents that just weren't, weren't really worth uh, giving up the first rounder for. Um, the other thing that I would point to is that, um, is the type of player they went after. Uh, there was a, a stage that they've sort of gotten out of, uh, their most where they would, they would bet on the high end athlete, uh, early. Um, so they drafted Anthony Hewitt in the first round in 2008 and, uh, Larry Green in the first round in 2011. Um, neither of whom really had much in the way of identifiable baseball skills, but, uh, but the front office, and I, again, I don't know how much of this is Amar specifically and how much of it is the scouting staff, but they really love that high-end athlete. Um, up until, uh, I, I believe, the the last first-rounder or first-round pick they spent on a college position player was Chase Utley uh, back in 2000. So those guys, like, they're great if, if they figure it out, but when they miss, they miss huge. And uh, the combination of that and... Um, you know, I was critical of the, the Larry Green pick at the time because Jackie Bradley, who, um, you know, I'm a massive South Carolina homer and, and Jackie Bradley was uh, the best player on those teams. And he went a pick later, um, probably like 30 picks later than he would have if he hadn't been hurt at the time. So they, they just missed the chance to to restock the farm system with a lot of um, with high probability players. And they drafted a lot of high upside players, but missed on almost all of them. And I think that speaks to probably some combination of bad luck and uh and just an utter failure in in player development which i think they've they've started to rectify in the past couple of years it's an interesting what if if they had hired arbuckle instead as you pointed out in the annual essay he and amaro were both assistant general managers they hired amaro arbuckle goes to kansas city and they have brought along some young talent at least do you obviously it's it's a hypothetical it's impossible to answer with any certainty but if they had made a different decision there do you think that they would have been in this predicament that they are now in and would they have lost anything in the short term um i think they would have lost it well it's it's hard to say because we don't have a, a track record for arbuckle himself as a as a general manager because he's mm-hmm. only ever been a, an agm um i it's it's hard to see him being as aggressive as Amara was in pursuing that uh, in building that rotation in 2010 and 2011. Um, but, you know, if he if he drafted as well from 2008 to 2012, 13, then, you know, the Phillies would be would be where, where the Marlins are. You know, that's that run of first round picks we've that that he had in the late nineties and early two thousands. The only thing we've seen like it was the, the uh, run in the mid two thousands where the giants built the core that won them three world series in five years. Like, so even if he, he was that skillful in drafting and, and had drafted better, um, you know, there was probably, there was as much, probably as much luck in, in drafting, you know, Utley and Hamels uh, that high as there was in, um, in Hewitt and green, not panning out. Are you uh, are you at all surprised that Jimmy Rollins was traded? Um, were you expecting uh, it to be uglier or anything like that? Were you ex- surprised by how smoothly it happened and how everybody just moved on, or did people not move on? You know, I think I think uh, he was he was he made he's made rumblings in the past that he wanted to go back to California. Um, that there was a he said something, I think, like back in 2008, this was like at least one one contract ago where he said he might want to 
uh, might want to go back to the West Coast. But I think he would have been entirely happy. Uh, he's not like for for all I know, Chase Utley's uh, or Chase Utley's in a, in a similar position where the, the Phillies probably would trade him if you wanted to or if you wanted to go. Um, but uh, Utley has no desire to leave. He wants to retire as a Philly. And I think Rollins would have been happy to. But he had one uh, one team that he was willing to accept a trade to, and that was the Dodgers. And considering that, I'm thrilled that um, I think Rollins is happy to be be on a winning team. I think the Phillies are, are ecstatic to to have gotten the return they got for him. I know I am. Um, so and I think it, this is just a, the kind of thing that that helps everyone. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, the trade of uh, when the Phillies traded Darren Dalton to the Marlins uh, midway through 1997, um, you know, just a. It was one of those first, you know, send the the guy to go get a ring as a, instead of making him play out his entire career for for this crappy team. So um, this will be kind of like speed roundy. I just want to know uh, which franchise you would rather be over the next, let's say, seven years. And um, I don't know. You can go by uh, playoff appearances made, uh, playoff appearances, World Series won. You could go by ninety win seasons. I don't really care. But uh, Phillies or Rangers. Rangers. Phillies or Marlins? Phillies, if only because I don't want to have to uh, root for Jeffrey Laurie's team. Uh, Phillies or Mets? Phillies. Phillies or Twins? Phillies. Phillies or Rockies? Phillies. Phillies or Indians? Um, Indians. But so I think I'm a, I think I'm actually, a little higher on the Indians in the short term than most people. So that's not quite as bad as I was thinking. I, I made a very last second decision to go seven years instead of five. If I had said five, would it have changed much? None of those teams are exactly poised to win this year. But yeah, uh, not really. I mean, the Phillies, I'm not sure anybody looks less likely to win over the next two than the Phillies. Is there is there a team in baseball? I guess the Rockies perpetually. But is there another team in baseball that looks less likely to win over the next two years than the Phillies? Maybe the um, maybe the Diamondbacks. Yeah, I think I think the Rockies are are it if there's one. Maybe the Diamondbacks. You all. So here the the thing about like that that kind of long term outlook is that the teams you picked are not only bad, but um, most of them are bad at least in large part because they have really crappy ownership. Yeah. And the the Phillies, like I don't you know I don't have any particular particular love for their ownership, but they sort of do that ideal where you and I think this was in. Um, this is in David J. Ross' essay about the about the Rockies that the ideal for a sports owner is that he spends the money, hires the experts, and and gets out of the way. Uh, and Philly's ownership, I think, is at least complicit in in some of those um, legacy deals like the Howard contract. But uh, you know, they're not they're nowhere near as as antithetical to winning as as ownership is in Miami or or, uh, or Minneapolis or in uh, or in Denver. So I think just the sheer force of economics um, has to make you uh, optimistic about the Phillies in the long term. And why aren't you frustrated about the lack of a Hamels trade? Because this is the one bullet like this is the one bullet they've got. I wrote something a couple months ago on Crash Burn Alley where I you know, explained this in, in at 2000 words plus length. Um, the, they've got to make this one count. They can't if they screw up the Hamels trade and get back what they got for Cliff Lee uh, from Seattle five, six years ago. That's going to set the rebuild back Um it's going to set the re- the rebuild back another two or three years. To say nothing of of Hamels is on an extremely reasonable contract for a pitcher of his caliber. 
Um, and he's a 31 year old finesse pitcher. He's left-handed. Uh, there's no indication that he's not going to age well. And by the time JP Crawford and, and Aaron Nola and, uh, you know, whoever else from this, uh, crop of prospects comes up to the majors, there's every possibility he could be a serviceable major league pitcher. So I think the, I think the, the national perception, um, on the, on Hamill's value, I think that Hamill's is very underrated as, as a pitcher. I think the, the, uh, impact of, of paying a pitcher like that, $24 million a year, like that's, that's a bargain for a pitcher of that caliber. And the Phillies are in in no position to need to rush. He's signed for uh, at least at least four more years. And uh, if you know if the deal isn't there now, and they make the de- or if 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 the deal isn't there now, they can make a better deal later. But if they make the deal now, they can't make a better deal later. So mm-hmm. I'm I think if someone comes comes in and knocks him over uh, with a trade offer, they should pull the trigger. But they shouldn't be out there. Um, actively making or actively uh, um, shopping him. Okay. So we're going to end with a win total prediction, which will not be a high note. So give us a high note, just one, one thing that Phillies fans can look forward to seeing on the field this season. Um, They, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you one thing. Generally, I think they're pitching, um, which is seems like a weird thing to say about a, a team that's probably going to give Jerome Williams 25 starts. But uh, <laughs> in in uh, in the minor leagues, they've got probably about half a dozen young, uh, uh, young Latin American arms who they've signed uh, for less than fifty thousand dollars. And they've started they've they've generated the ability to turn pretty much anybody who who throws hard into a, a back end of the bullpen kind of prospect. And, uh, you know, we saw this with, with Kenny Giles, um, who came up last year, who was, a you know, a Steve Dalkowski clone from a junior college in Arizona when they drafted him and he came in and in 45 innings was every bit as good as Craig Kimbrell. Um, so they've got a couple more guys like that coming down the pipe. And I think that's, you know, having a good bullpen in and of itself is, and it doesn't make you a winning team, but that's an indication that their player development is turning around at least, at least a little bit. Um, but in the short term, they're bringing it, they're going to bring up Aaron Nola this year. Um, I was a little disappointed in the draft because I thought that this year's, this past year's draft was, uh, had five potential superstars and I knew the Cubs weren't going to pick one of them. And, uh, the other five teams ahead of the Phillies got those five guys, but Nola is, um, you know, he is about as low variance a prospect as they come. He was uh, an elite, elite starting pitcher at LSU. He's durable. He has, uh, has plus command. He's got three good pitches. Um, and you know, he could have stepped off campus and, and probably pitched in the major leagues. And he's got more upside than someone like Mike Leak, who, who also would have fit that uh, description. So Nola is going to be the first one apart from Giles, who I think they're the first member of the next good Phillies team to come up. Okay. So we hate it when people ask us for win total predictions, but that will not prevent us from perpetuating this crime on others. So tell us how many wins I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell the guests the Pakoda projected win total. I don't want to influence you or anchor you to that number. So just give me the number that you have in mind. I'm going to say 66. I All think. Right. Yeah, I I don't know the Pakoda uh 
for sure. I, I think it's it's 68 or 69, right? 70 at the moment. Oh, is it 70? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think just by nature of uh, projection sort of being conservative and the fact that if they do trade Hamels in the, in the middle of the season, that could cost us, mm-hmm. uh, cost him a couple wins. So, and also I'm a, a pessimistic person by nature. So, <laughs> and yet you're a Phillies fan still. So thank you for continuing to be one so that we could have you on this podcast to start our series. Thanks, Michael. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, so everyone can go follow Michael on Twitter at MJ underscore Bauman. You can see his work at Grantland and you can read his book, which came out since the Phillies last played a game. It's called Philadelphia Phenoms, the most amazing athletes to play in the city of brotherly love. How many current Phillies are Philadelphia Phenoms? Uh, just one. <laughs> just one. Yeah. Ryan Howard is not a phenom. And Ryan Howard is not. Ryan Howard did not. Uh, uh, Jimmy Rollins just missed the cut. Uh, uh-huh. it's, it's 20 across uh, across five sports. So mm-hmm. it, was, okay. it came down to like Jimmy Rollins or Richie Ashburn. And uh, I um, didn't want to anger all the old people. Chase Utley is a phenom, I can assume. Yes. Okay. I did not pick the title, by the way. There's this. <laughs> there, I'm gonna just step in and, and say that one of the unfortunate side effects of the Phillies being good, right when uh, sports blogging uh, became a thing, was that all the blogs, all the Phillies blogs, had some sort of alliterative double PH <laughs> title <laughs> where they they changed the. And I'm, you know, I the one that I started out on was uh, uh, one that that Paul Boyer and I. Uh, started or he started and I started writing for it um, called the frontiersman, which I think had no particular significance apart from it was a word that started with F that we could make start with PH. (laughs) So like acknowledging that I was part of the problem. I'm glad that this is something that's in our rearview mirror now. I'm glad that Grantland doesn't start with an F because he would have tried to make it into a PH. I wouldn't. I thought it was stupid. (laughs) All right. So that is it for the first segment. Please stay tuned. To hear Sahadev Sharma speak to Megan Montemuro from the News Journal. When you make that California trip, get your kicks on Route 66. I'm Sahadev Sharma, and with me is Megan Montemuro, the Phillies beat writer for the News Journal. Megan, thanks for joining me. Megan used to work in Chicago with me. Uh, we both got, uh, I guess you'd say, jerked around by multiple <laughs> news organizations in Chicago before we finally landed on our feet with our respective uh, uh, jobs now. But So she's been through uh, a couple rebuilding processes in Chicago, and now she's going through another one in Philadelphia uh, Megan, the offseason was filled with with rumors for the Phillies, and they did get to move uh, a couple big names, especially Jimmy Rollins. Uh, what what was the return like? What did they get enough for Rollins? Did they get enough for the pieces that they have, or or are, are we just sitting here waiting for the Cole Hamels move to really see this rebuild start? I definitely, I think, given the Phillies situation, you know what they got uh, mainly for Jimmy Rollins and Marlon Byrd was. Pretty good return. I think it's a pretty safe consensus that they did pretty well in, in that regard, given, you know, their minor league system really needs an effusion of some young talent that's closer to reaching the majors. Because uh, most of their guys, you know, you look at JP Crawford, you know, he hasn't hit double A yet. And, you know, Aaron Nola was only drafted last year. So, you know, in, in the Rollins deal with the Dodgers, you know, you get two pitchers 
in uh, Tom Wendell and uh, Zach Eflin, who, you know, immediately, you know, they're right around the top five in their organization. And then, you know, for the bird trade to the Reds, you get a guy in Ben Lively, who was their minor league pitcher of the year. And, you know, talking to him, you know, he fully expected to be with the Reds organization uh, moving forward. So that was kind of a surprise, um, you know, that he joins the Phillies. But those three guys, you know, could very well start at double A this year and you add in NOLA and that double A rotation could be much more intriguing than the Phillies big league rotation. So I think all things considered, you know, they got pretty good return for two veterans. So it's not as uh, hopeless as some make it seem, but how important is getting a big, big return for Cole Hamels? And should we, I think we've, we've all kind of accepted that this isn't going to happen in the off season. Is that the right way to look at it? Or could something happen in the next co- few weeks, next month and a half? Or should we just be waiting for July? Yeah, with Hamels, absolutely the Phillies cannot afford to screw this up. You know, you look at some of Ruben Amaro's um, trades in the past, you know, specifically with Cliff Lee, you know, the return they got for him, you know, it really hasn't panned out. You have a guy in Tommy Joseph who's a catcher who was supposed to be, you know, the big next big thing, and he's had concussion problems and injuries. So, you know, they, they have to, to hit a home run, you know, with the Hamels deal. And, you know, it makes sense that they're holding out for the best deal possible. And it makes sense, you know, other teams don't want to give up, you know, two legit prospects to get a guy like Hamels. So it's kind of, you know, who's going to blink first in, in a deal like this. And I would be surprised at this point, you know, with spring training pitchers and catchers report to Clearwater on February 19th. Uh, so I think it would be a surprise at this point if he get if Hamels gets dealt before then. But you know injuries happen in spring training um, and, and early in the season, so I wouldn't be surprised you know if, if Hamels doesn't last past the trade deadline. Uh, especially you know with an extra wild card team, you have more contenders closer to the uh, to the playoffs. You know when it comes to the trade deadline, so you know that can help ramp up some competition uh, for his services. Uh, but yeah, they definitely need to get top tier talent if they're going to move, you know, one of the few legitimate number one starters in baseball. I feel like one name that we hadn't heard a lot in the off season and understandably so he was injured for a lot of last year is Cliff Lee, but he's, uh, he's, a, would be, could be a really nice piece, uh, for any contender still, still pitches at a high level when he's healthy. Uh, I saw a tweet basically saying that there's a chance if he proves that he's healthy, that he's moved in spring training, but he seems like another July, July arm that if, uh, if the Phillies get some interest that he'd be moved then is how much is his contract an issue? And if that's not really an issue, is he a, is he a possible guy that moved that's moved in July? Yeah. I mean, first off he has to prove he's healthy and I would be shocked if he got dealt during spring training. You know, when you look at his, his arm injury, you know, he's, he, he had issues with it twice last year that landed him on the DL and, you know, ended up ending his season. So, you know, if, if you're someone that's going to acquire him, you know, I, I would think if you're a GM, you want to see him pitch in some real, you know, regular season games and, you know, show they can be healthy for a month, you know, before you try and acquire him, especially since he's uh, scheduled to be owed, you know, $25 million this year, which is one of the biggest uh, contracts uh, and amount money owed for this year. So, you know, it's not someone that you can just take a flyer on and, oh, you know, if he doesn't pan out, you're not investing much in, in him. Obviously, if the Phillies want to move him, they're going to have to pay uh, some of his contract off. It's pretty much that's going to ha- how they're going to have to operate if they want to move these veteran guys. You know, you saw it with Bird and you saw it with Rollins. They paid some of that money. 
uh, especially, you know, with Cliffley having an option uh, for next year that has a buyout, you know, they're probably going to have to pay the buyout, include that money in. So you have to figure, you know, they might be paying, you know, $13 million, um, just to move him. But, again, it comes back to, you know, with a rebuilding team, you need to, to move some of these veteran pieces and, and get youth for them because, you know, there's not much value to have them on your team right now. Uh, I guess the theme so far has been trades for this interview <laughs> and uh, I'll stick there for, for just a couple more minutes. I, I, I want to talk about Ryan Howard. I know it, it's just insane to, to consider that he could even be moved. It, it was a similar feeling. Uh, you and I had the, a similar feeling, I'd say two or three years ago with Alfonso Soriano mm-hmm. in Chicago and they managed, the Cubs managed to move him. He built up his value and, and, you know, they, you know, they had to kick in some money and they got a nice piece for him. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that the best case scenario for Howard or is there just not a way to move him realistically? I mean, I, yeah, I, I draw a lot of parallels, to, you know, to the Cubs with where the Phillies are and, you know, in terms of these contracts that so they just have to move. And, you know, obviously Ryan Howard is, is the biggest block in terms of, you know, getting this rebuilding mode, you know, fully underway because, you know, you're putting, you're starting him in a position where, you know, you're blocking a guy like potentially a uh, uh, Franco from, you know, getting some important bats and letting him play and Cody Ashley play at the same time. And, you know, with, with Howard on the field, you're really, you're not getting much out of him for a guy who doesn't have a long-term future with this team. And it's tough. I mean, last year it was important that he showed that he could stay healthy a full season uh, you know, he still hit 20 plus home runs, which is still, you know, power still a priority in the, in baseball. And especially, you know, he's a left-handed hitter, but, you know, in terms of speed, you know, he clogs the base pass because he just doesn't have the legs for it anymore. Uh, defensively, he's okay, but, you know, he's kind of at a real replacement level at this point defensively. Um, so it's going to come down to, you know, is there going to be an American League team that, you know, needs a DH that can, you know, also split some time at, at first base. And, you know, when you look around the American League, that really only leaves you with a team or two at this point. And, you know, obviously the Phillies are going to have to eat a lot of that $60 million that he's owed um, in the next two-plus years. But, you know, they, they've pretty much resigned to the fact that one way or another they're going to be paying that. Um, but if, if they – ideally, you know, a Soriano situation arises where, you know, they move him to an AL team that needs some power. You know, the Orioles were a big uh, speculation for a landing spot, you know, during the offseason. The Rays have always been a team that makes sense. He has a house down in Florida, um, but nothing's come to fruition. So it's going to be potentially a very awkward spring training after – you know, Amaro said during the offseason that both sides would be better parting ways. So it should be pretty interesting to see, you know, how how Howard especially reacts to that, you know, with his first public comments since, you know, Ruben said that. Yeah, that that can't go over too, <laughs> too great, you would think. Uh, is there anything for 2015 that Phillies fans can look forward to as far as pieces uh, for the future? Are there going to be guys that are actually up at the big league level that you could – build around is franco a guy like that uh is does ben revere you know get fans excited at all yeah uh who are the names that we should keep an eye out for i think one of the biggest is obviously mikel franco um although you know amaro made it pretty clear that you know there's a pretty good chance he's going to start the season at triple a which kind of makes sense you know he played in uh the dominican winter league and you know his team was in the caribbean series 
Um, so he only just finished playing baseball, you know, this week. And then, you know, a week later, spring training begins. So, um, you know, they're, they're in no rush to get him up there, especially when you have, you know, a young guy in Cody Ashy, um, who's at third base. And, and I think another one would be Aaron Nola, their first round pick last year. He's not expected to make the team out of camp, but it, it should not be a surprise that if some, so at some point, uh, you know, the second half of the season, you know, he comes up in the rotation and, you know, gets his first taste of the big leagues because it's important, you know, to see what they can get out of him. And, you know, he's lived up to the billing that he can be a fast riser through the organization. And, you know, they're pretty optimistic that he can uh, make his way up by the end of the year. And, you know, you mentioned Ben Revere and it'll be interesting to see if he can replicate, you know, his success. I know he always comes under criticism because his um, base percentage isn't, you know, necessarily where you want it to be, but he is a younger guy and, you know, in an outfield where they have really struggled to develop, you know, young outfielders, you know, Dominic Brown hasn't lived up to expectations and they don't really have anyone else uh, to really pull up right now. So it's going to be important uh, for Revere to show that, you know, he can be a guy that can, you know, be lead the league in hits and, and find ways to get on base. And now that he's healthy this year, uh, after getting screws taken out of his ankle, you know, can he, uh, you know, be a better uh, bunter and get on base more and, you know, steal 40 plus bases again. So I'd say, you know, Nola, Franco and Revere are probably the, the three to watch um, in terms of, you know, younger guys and, and where they fit in moving forward. Uh, as far as how the fans are taking the rebuild, is this something that they were kind of pushing for the general consensus among fans for years so they're they're actually happy about it or is there some is it is it just people don't care about the phillies right now in philadelphia or are they just kind of uh you know angry hey we we don't want to sit through 100 lost seasons yeah you know spend the money and bring free agents and do whatever it takes to push for a wild card run i think it's a combination of two things i think you know fans are pretty realistic that yeah, you know, you need to rebuild. You know, it was a good core with Jimmy Rollins, Chase Sutley, and Ryan Howard, but clearly they're all on the back end of their careers, and, you know, you need to change things up. But, you know, on the flip side, there's, you know, frustration and anger that you have Ruben Amaro, you know, still is the GM to be the one who is, at least right now, expected to, you know, guide the team through this rebuild, and there's not much faith uh, you know, from a fan's perspective that he can do this and, you know, do it well. Um, so it's going to be interesting, you know, Ruben's in the last year of his deal. So at some point <laughs> this year, they're either going to have to announce that he's coming back for at least another year, or, you know, they're going to have to announce that they're parting ways and um, bring fl- fresh blood in. But, you know, with Pat Gillick now, you know, losing the interim title and, uh, you know, taking on that, president role full time um you know it would be interesting if if they did change up the gm situation but you know as it stands now ruben's the guy in charge and um definitely there's some fan frustration at that as far as the pitching staff for next year with guys like harangue and kevin slowey even are these guys that what they're doing similar to what we saw the cubs doing buying low and kind of hoping these guys build up some value and these are guys that they can move uh come the deadline is that the is that the thought process behind adding some of these lower cost arms yeah i mean ruben acknowledged it last year you know when they uh flipped roberto hernandez at the trade deadline for a prospect um that you know that was what's something that they were going to try to continue to do going forward and you know, Aaron Herring definitely fits that 
uh, mold um, in terms of, you know, buy, buy low and potentially sell high. And especially, you know, you look at Chad Billingsley, who mm-hmm. who's <laughs> pretty much hasn't pitched in two years. Um, you know, he's going to get a shot at trying to win a spot in the rotation. And um, he clearly has a ton of upside um, given what he's done in his past. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, they're, they definitely have brought in, you know, a good mix of veterans to try and uh, fight for a spot in the rotation. Then you still have, you know, some younger guys in the mix too. So um, they definitely want to to try and get the most value out of some of those uh, veteran signings. So it'd be, I would definitely expect to see a guy like Herring, and if Billingsley can make the rotation, you know, out of camp, um, definitely those two guys would be prime candidates to get traded at the deadline. Uh, I, I we're both used to following. Uh, writing about and following really bad teams, so <laughs> so sometimes you have to come up with a storyline, or there there is just something really interesting, even if things aren't going well on the field. What's what are you looking at? What's the storyline for the for 2015? Uh, maybe it's even something we've already mentioned, but what's the thing that you you think is uh, most interesting and and will be most fun to to look out for in 2015 for the Phillies? I'm kind of looking, you know, especially you know since we kind of get an inside look in the clubhouse and. Um, maybe see stuff that other people don't. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this mix of veterans that want to be on winning teams, you have Cole Hamels who, you know, he's playing the diplomat saying, you know, he signed here to pitch for the team at the same time he wants to play for, you know, a winner as anyone would. So if you got, you have a guy like Hamels, you have Cliff Lee, you have Papelbon who's been clearly vocal, you know, last year and wanting to play for a contender. And then on the flip side, you have younger guys that you're bringing in and you have younger pitchers like David Buchanan, who pitched well last year in his rookie season. And you have guys like Franco coming up and potentially J.P. Crawford in the next year or so. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see the dynamic between those sides where, you know, you have a manager in Ryan Sandberg who's, you know, pretty well known for working well with younger guys and, um It'll be interesting to see how those kind of contrasting, I guess, desires work where you have veterans who don't want to be part of a rebuilding process and younger guys who are eager to play and, you know, want to prove themselves. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic that I don't think it's really been talked about much, but it was definitely something that, you know, kind of started bubbling last year um, through the struggle. So it's going to be interesting to see how how those kind of differing – viewpoints and uh desires work out in the end yeah there's it's always fun to cover drama whether it's yeah. <laughs> good or bad drama is always fun uh megan thanks for joining me why don't you uh tell everyone where they can find you on twitter and where they can read your work yeah you can find me on twitter at m underscore montemiro and you can find my work at uh delawareonline.com thanks for joining that's megan montemiro with the News Journal, Phillies beat writer. Appreciate your time, Megan. Take care. Thanks. All right, so you made it through the Phillies preview podcast. I promise all the Pakoda projections get rosier from here. Please support our sponsor by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We welcome your emails. Again, we will be doing listener email shows every Wednesday at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And you can join our Facebook group to discuss today's episode or other episodes or other things about baseball at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We also welcome your reviews and ratings and subscriptions on iTunes and invite you back here tomorrow for another team preview podcast.
But the and, Nationals are the only good, like they're one of oh, like, yeah, yeah, two yeah. good teams in baseball. Yeah, they're there are certainly only two good teams in the National League. Yeah. And there definitely aren't any good teams in the American League. So that's two total. Exactly. <clears throat> 